Uh, how many of you guys were here last Sunday when we were out there? Yeah, good number of you, decent number of you. Last Sunday, if you missed it, it's okay. I think we're going to try to do it again a couple of times this summer. But last Sunday, we, um, we were all outside in the quad. We had one service. We kicked off the night with uh, amazing tacos, which if tacos don't, you know, speak to you of the goodness of God, then I don't know what will. So those tacos were incredible. They were a spiritual experience eating them. And then we, uh, we all worshiped together under the summer sky out there last week. And as we did that, it was so fitting, uh, we kicked off a series called A Return to Wonder. This summer, as a community, on Sunday nights, uh, together as a, as a church, we are going to trek through the entire book of Colossians together. And we're splitting it up into three parts. And so this opening part, this opening kind of of the study of Colossians, is a series that we've titled A Return to Wonder. And uh, we're just going to journey. Uh, we started it last week. We're going to be in it tonight. And then a couple more weeks, we're going to journey through the first chapter of Colossians. If you have not read Colossians 1, I would encourage you this week, spend some time reading it. It's not long. It won't take you that long. Maybe I, I would challenge you, would you read Colossians 1 like every day? Just maybe set aside some time. Maybe it's in the morning for you. Maybe it's at night before you go to bed. Maybe it's on your lunch break. But set aside some consistent time this week and just read Colossians 1. It's this letter that Paul writes to what was at the time of a really insignificant city in the empire, and yet it is full of such richness. And the reason we worshiped out there under the sky in as close to nature as possible here on the campus of Del Mar, um, the reason we did that is because Colossians 1, in Colossians 1, Paul writes a lot about Jesus, which is always a good thing, Right? He writes a lot about Jesus, but in explaining Jesus to us, while Paul instructs us and tells us a ton of truth about Jesus, the hinge for us, the anchor of Colossians 1, as we started it last week, Ryan taught on this last Sunday, is, is found for us in chapter 1, verse 27. And Paul says this, he talks about Jesus, and then he explains Jesus and this faith that we have, this thing called Christianity. He calls it, this is, this is abstract and odd, but hang with me, he calls it a mystery. In, in verse 27 of Colossians 1, Paul calls this, all of this stuff that we're doing, our faith, our religion, church, Christianity, the following of Jesus, he calls this thing that we are doing together a mystery, and he explains the mystery this way. He says, it is the mystery, this is crazy, of Christ in you, Jesus in you the hope of glory. I mean, that's like mind-bendingly strange. Me, like frail, messed up, Jack. I know myself in ways that none of you know me, right? Like you all know the outside of me. I know the inside of me. I know the dark places of my soul and my spirit. And Christ decides to be in there. And from the inside to change and transform and renew me and you. That's the hope of glory. 
And it's a mystery. That's how, that's how Paul describes it. It's a mystery. I don't, I don't get how it works, but that is what is happening. And so this series is called A Return to Wonder because we have lost that ability to wonder. We're so enamored with answers that we have failed to recognize the importance, the deep value of sitting in questions, in mystery, and not having to explain anything and simply embracing the fact that God's grace goes beyond human comprehension. And tonight, as we continue trekking through Colossians 1, we're going to be in a short little passage, verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Colossians 1, 13 and 14. It'll also be up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. But uh, before we get into it, um, I just want to tell you a really quick story. Or Let me ask a question first. Have any of you ever experienced like the sheer joy or exhilaration of being rescued from like an impossible situation? Anybody? Just think about it. You might have to think about it for a while. Yeah, some of you guys. I mean, it's like inexplicable, right? I, long story short, I, I don't want to take up, take up too much time. Uh, I used to be a youth pastor, so every summer we used to take high school students up to Lake Shasta and we'd rent like really ghetto houseboats and really ghetto ski boats and take them wakeboarding and tubing and all that kind of stuff. Super fun. Shasta's beautiful. It was amazing. One summer we're up there and again, I worked for a church. We had no money, so we just rented really crappy boats. So we have this ski boat and I've got like six or seven students with me and I take them all the way out. If you've never been to Lake Shasta, it is a huge lake and with all of these separate arms that just like branch out and all these coves. I mean, it's huge. So I took these students and I decided, okay, I just want to get these guys like some, some clear space so that I don't have to worry about other boats like cutting in. These kids were just learning how to wakeboard. So I really wanted them to just kind of have like long straightaways. So I, we trek out, way out, like way, way out to this remote part of Lake Shasta. And I, and I get them to strap in their wakeboard, and we're just wakeboarding, right? I'm, I'm pulling these kids, and my uh, gas meter on the boat tells me that I have like a half tank of gas. Again, ghetto boats, right? I rent ghetto boats. So the gas meter, they didn't tell me this when I rented the boat. Gas meter's busted, right? So it turns out I'm empty, and the reason I found out, right, I'm like pulling this kid, kid's like, oh my gosh, he's freaking out. And then like the boat slowly starts putt-putting. He's like, I'm sinking, right? I'm like, I'm sorry, dude, right? And the boat, the boat just stops. And here we are, me, the adult leader, the youth pastor, right? I got to be under control. And like six high school students, six or seven high school students, and they're all freaking out, right? And I'm trying to be calm and collected. Guys, it's going to be fine. Boat's going to drive by. We'll wave them, flag them down. We'll be good to go. But on the inside, right, I'm thinking like, who are we going to eat first, right? Like, we have to, like, someone build a fort. We got to make spears. Like, you know, it's just like crazy. Lord of the Flies. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's nuts. Uh, and we wait, kid you not, we wait. We sit there 45 minutes and not a single boat goes by. So at this point, right, I'm thinking like, what? We are going to die. <laughs> like, this is, oh my gosh. You know, my kids are freaking out. It's only been 45 minutes, but they're like, I'm dying of dehydration. You know, they're being really dramatic. And finally, we see a boat like off in the distance. And 
uh, ski boats are loud, you know, and this boat was way out there and they were, they were tubing and so it was loud and crazy and I'm like, there's no way this boat is going to see us, but like what, I mean, like we're not going to not do anything. So I tell the kids, like get up on the boat, grab anything bright, right, the life jacket, the flat, orange flag, everything. And we're just waving, right? We're like waving like crazy and yelling at the top of our lungs. And miraculously, this boat sees us, right? And so they pull their tubers in, they turn, and they, they, you know, they turn and they start slowly trekking towards us. And I kid you not, like the joy, the exhilaration, the exuberance, I still remember it in vivid detail. I mean, these, these kids, uh, these students of mine were like, I mean, it was like they had won the lottery, right? They were like, no! They were like freaking out, high-fiving, hugging each other. They're hugging me. It's like, like I don't right? It was insane. They're like losing their minds. And, you know, on the inside, I was feeling the same way, but I'm trying to be calm and collected like, oh, yeah, you know, I told you it was going to happen. <laughs> it was totally fine. And this boat came and, and took us in, and we got some gas in it, and it all got worked out. And, and I still remember, again, in vivid detail, the feeling of waiting just 45, I mean, 45 minutes and, and kind of like, you know, the big picture, the big scheme of life. 45 minutes is not that long, and it was actually a really memorable experience. These students are now, you know, post-college. Some of them are married, and so we can still talk about these stories, and they get really embarrassed at how freaked out they were when they were, you know, 15 or, or, or whatever, but... Um, but I still remember, I mean, all these years later, I still remember in vivid detail, not just the look of the whole situation, but my heart. I remember how much and how immediately joy and exuberance and hope filled me, right? How immediately a place that was full of despair and uh, chaos and fear, all of that immediately dissipated the moment I saw this boat approaching us and immediately replaced with joy and, ho and hope and amazement and wonder. And the reality is for us as followers of Jesus, the truth is those are not the words we would use to most accurately describe the themes which ebb and flow through our following, our lives of following Jesus. Because the fact is, for me, when I think about my Christian life, it's not joy and exuberance, it's not surprise, it's not wonder, it's not awe and amazement. Those are not the themes that ebb and flow through my following of Jesus. For me, it's more like habit and ritual. I would describe my Christian life often as mundane and ordinary. I would dare even say that sometimes I feel like it's boring. And I would venture to guess that that is accurate for many of us. And here's the deal. The reason I believe and the reason Paul states here in, in Colossians 1 is that possibly, it is possible, that we have forgotten the reality that the greatest rescue in the history of the world has taken place. And you and I are the beneficiaries. You and I are the ones who were rescued. Colossians 1, 13 to 14, Paul writes about God's rescuing of us. For he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness 
and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has rescued us. He's rescued us. We were out, stranded, wrecked at sea, alone, hopeless, with no way, no means by which we could get to the place that our hearts all long to be. And God came and rescued us. And we have forgotten the imagery and the moment of his ship slowly approaching. The exhilaration, the amazement, the sense of awe and wonder that we out at sea would be rescued. And so tonight, here's, here's the deal. Our hope is that we would remember this truth, that the experience of being rescued evokes within us a sense of awe-inspired gratitude. It fills us with a sort of wonder and amazement. Our hope is that we would leave here with a renewed sense of that. Awe-inspired gratitude, wonder and amazement that God has indeed rescued us when we could not rescue ourselves. And in order for us to feel the full weight of the wonder and amazement of God's rescue in our lives, we have to ask two questions that Paul actually answers in this passage. What has he rescued us from, and what has he rescued us into? And the, the question, the first question, what has he rescued us from, Paul tells us that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. The dominion of darkness. The place where the enemy reigns, call him Satan, call him the devil, call him whatever you want, but the enemy of God, the place where he reigns, the dominion of darkness. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, classic series, Chronicles of Narnia, talks about the enemy of Aslan, the, the lion who represents Jesus. He, he talks about the enemy of Aslan, who is the white witch, and he says this about the white witch. He says that the white witch has cast a spell on the land of Narnia, and I love this description because I think that it accurately describes our reality. He says that the white witch has cast a spell on Narnia, which has made it always winter, but never Christmas. Remember when you were a kid? Can you imagine if it was winter time and Christmas never came? I mean, you would have had a fit. I would have had a fit. Are you serious? No presents under the tree? Right? All of this buildup and anticipation, and yet Christmas never comes. It's this massive lie. It's this buildup to a, into an absolute disappointment. And this is how C.S. Lewis describes what the white witch who represents the enemy, Satan, devil, whatever. This is how he describes what the enemy of God does, always winter, but never Christmas. Paul actually uh, talks about this in a sense. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14, um, Paul writes that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. That Satan masquerades as an angel of light. John 8, 44, Jesus himself describes the enemy. He says this, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, his native language, 
For he, the enemy, is a liar and the father of lies. Do you see the theme of the dominion of darkness? Satan's name actually, his name itself actually infers his deceptive nature, that he is a deceiver. The dominion of darkness, the place where the enemy reigns, is a place fueled and fed and driven by deception. I mean, this is the nature of the enemy. When you go all the way back to the first chapters of the Bible in Genesis 3, at the, what we call the fall, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit and blah, 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 all this stuff. What is at the core root of, of sin entering the human story? It is the enemy, the serpent, deceiving Adam and Eve. Well, did God really say, eh, you'll be fine? The enemy and his dominion of darkness that Paul writes about here is fueled by deception. He is a liar. That's the nature of his, his rule and reign in the dark places. In John chapter 3, Jesus says this, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into light, into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I mean, the language Jesus uses and the New Testament uses so often to describe Jesus is that he is light, that he is the light of the world. And what does light do? Light exposes things for what they are. And what is the language the New Testament so often uses to describe the enemy's territory, the enemy of God? Darkness. And what is darkness? Darkness is a place where your vision is skewed. Darkness is a place where deception is easy. Darkness is a place where the stuff that should not be done is done. Where the business that should not be carried out is carried out. And so Jesus tells us in John 3, darkness has no hold over you. You don't need to live in, in that lie, that, that domain, that dominion of deception and lies anymore. The dominion, this is in your notes, the dominion of darkness, the place from which God has rescued us is a place where deception thrives and deception inevitably leads to death. I mean, what does Jesus say about himself? He says, I am the truth. The truth. I am the way and I am the life. Deception leads to death. And the dominion of darkness is a place where it thrives. And so that's the place from which God has rescued us. What is it? Where is it that God has rescued us into? If he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, what has he rescued us into? And Paul writes that God has rescued us into the kingdom of the Son. The kingdom of the Son whom he loves. This is Jesus that Paul is talking about. Kingdom language during this time in first century Palestine was uh, different than the way you and I hear kingdom language. You and I don't live under a monarchy, and so the idea of kings and queens is like foreign to us, right? 
But at the time, uh, the people, Paul's original listeners, would have understood this concept in a very visceral way. Right? They would have understood it. In fact, the Jewish people at the time were awaiting the ushering in of God's kingdom. And for them, this was like a literal kingdom. They thought that God was going like, to restore them to a, a physical, geographical land. They believed that God was going to actually place like a king, an actual physical king on the throne. They believed him to be the Messiah, that he would come and rule and conquer. And yet Jesus and the rest of the New Testament paints a different picture of this kingdom for us. In John chapter 18, Jesus is arrested to be tried and then eventually he's crucified, sentenced to death and crucified. And during this arrest, he's questioned by Pontius Pilate. Many of you know this story. And Pilate asks him about his kingdom. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 18, verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. This is hugely significant. Jesus is not simply saying that my kingdom is like some far-off, physical, distant place, not here on earth. That's not the point Jesus is making. Jesus is making a point about the nature of his kingdom. He's making a point about what his kingdom actually is, and he is subversively making this incredibly, like, ridiculous at the time statement about how his kingdom works. He says that if my kingdom were like the kingdoms here on earth, my servants, my best friends, my disciples, they would take out their swords and they would fight for me, but they don't because my kingdom doesn't operate that way. You know what's interesting about this? Just like 20 verses before this, what we just read in John 18, when they're about to arrest Jesus, uh, Peter, who is one of Jesus' best friends, pulls out his sword. You guys know what he does, right? He like chops off the ear of one of the guys trying to arrest Jesus. And 20-something verses later, Jesus says, no, my servants do not fight for me because that's not how my kingdom works. And, and 20 verses before, what had Jesus told Peter? The same exact thing. No, 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 put your sword away. And then he takes this guy's ear and like reattaches it to his head. And what is the picture Jesus is painting about his kingdom? He is telling us and the people at the time, my kingdom does not operate this way. My kingdom will not rule and reign with an iron fist or with swords or spears. My kingdom will be ushered in because I will take on the cross and a throne of corn. Thorn, corn a throne of a throne of corn. <laughs> Tweet that. Because we're like, uh, I don't think you should go to awakening. And they'd like, think Jesus wore corn on his head. <laughs> a crown of thorns. Right, Th the kingdom that Jesus ushers in is a kingdom in which the king does not say, I rule and reign with an iron fist, and I will pummel and punish and destroy and kill anyone who stands against me. The kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Son into which we have been rescued is a kingdom built on sacrifice, in love, in grace. It is a kingdom that lays down the sword 
It is a kingdom that says war will not rule the day. Peace will rule the day. It's this subversive, reverse, upside down, doesn't make sense sort of kingdom. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, John has this vision of this kingdom of the Son that we've been rescued into. Here's how he describes it it's beautiful. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The kingdom of the Son, Jesus Christ, the kingdom into which we have been rescued is a place where healing thrives. Pain is gone and death is defeated. And so we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness where deception thrives and deception that leads to death. And God has taken us from there to the kingdom of his son where healing thrives where there is no more pain and where death is done away with. And, and so what is this rescue exactly? In the Greek, the original word, like in the original language, the, the word for rescue that Paul uses in verse 13 is the root word ruamai. And ruamai actually doesn't just mean rescuing someone from point A to point B. It doesn't mean like the friends who came and rescued us from our boat to the dock so we could get gas and left us. Ruamai actually means to deliver another to oneself. Ruamai means to take one who is in need of rescue and to draw them close into yourself. And so what Paul is stating for us in, first Col in Colossians 1, 13, is that God, through the work of his son Jesus, has not just rescued us from one place and put us, dropped us off in another. He is saying that God has rescued us from darkness and brought us in to himself. That God, God draws us close and that God draws us near. And he talks about redemption and the forgiveness of sins, which makes total sense here because he is a holy God and we are broken people. And in order for us to be drawn close, a broken people, sinful people, to be drawn close to a holy and perfect God, what must happen? Forgiveness of sins. Redemption and forgiveness of sins are the necessary means by which God draws us close and delivers us to himself. If that does not fill you with awe and wonder, then you might need to think about this just a little bit longer. When I got to college, I decided for some odd reason to like throw my life away. 
Uh, I grew up in the church, and when I turned 18 and I went to De Anza and like maybe I took a philosophy class or something, and I thought I'd become insanely smart because I read half a book, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm so smart. This whole God thing, Christianity, it's such a lie, such a joke. So I just walked away. And for three years, I just decided to do my own thing. I was like so full of myself. I thought I had it all figured out. And for three years, I, I was, I, my life was just spiraling out of control. Long story short, December, right? December of, I guess it would have been the year 1999, 2000. I was 21, so I guess it was 2000. December of the year 2000. In, in the span of five days, five days this happened, shortly before Christmas. I dropped out of school. I lost my job. I broke up with this girl that I had been seriously dating for a long while, and I like totaled my car. Now, the reason I tell you that is because totaling my car was the culmination of like this, which was quite possibly the worst week of my life. And it was all my fault. It was like no one else to blame but me. I did all that. I dropped out of school. I quit my job. I broke up with, with that girl. I mean, I was just a mess. And one night, I'm driving home. It's like 2 or 3 in the morning, and I'm exiting off 680 Montague Expressway. And I don't know if you guys know that exit, but there's like this cement divider. And I fell asleep at the wheel, and my car hit the cement divider maybe going 35 miles an hour, which doesn't sound really fast. It's actually pretty bad when you're driving like a tiny little Honda Civic. And so my, con, my, my car spun out of control. I hit the cement divider multiple times. My doors were all jammed in. I broke my clavicle. I had this really gnarly like, uh, like seatbelt tattoo looking thing, right? Because of this giant bruise. And I remember when I came to, I couldn't find my cell phone because it was like lodged somewhere in the wreckage and my door wouldn't open. So I remember having to like crawl out the back and kick the back door open. And it was raining. And for just a split second, I remember thinking to myself like, this is like a movie. <laughs> it's like incredible. I'm crawling on all fours and, you know, I'm like praying to God that somebody doesn't hit me as they're exiting the freeway and it's just dark and pitch black and raining and I'm cold and I'm bloody and I'm hurting everywhere and I literally like stumble my way down Montague Expressway trying to figure it out and I see off in the distance, in the midst of the darkness, I see a Chevron gas station. Right? And I'm thinking to myself, Chevron with Tecron, it's going to be okay. <laughs> right? So I like stumble my way to the Chevron and like this is going to sound so stupid, but this Chevron was like the brightest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I had this insanely spiritual moment at a Chevron at 3 a.m., bloody and bruised. I thought, this is heaven. Right? Like, like I, with flaming Hot Cheetos and Snapple, you know? Like, I was like, this is amazing. And I crawl, I stumble into this, like, into a little snack shop or whatever, and the guy working the counter can clearly see I messed up, so he rushes around, complete stranger, and he grabs me. He's like, hey, man, are you all right? And this is going to sound so strange. Just hang with me. I kid you not. I kid you not, this perfect stranger, I felt like those were the, the arms of God holding me up. In that moment, in the brightness of a Chevron snack shop, I realized that no matter how dark my life had gotten, there is a light 
that outshines it all. My life slowly started to turn around there, and, uh, and now, 12 years later, here I am because of the grace of Jesus. But you know what's really interesting? Earlier, I told this to the 5 o'clock service. Um, I felt, I experienced this powerful moment of God's rescuing of my life in a car accident. In the worst week of my life, I feel like God dragged me out of the mud and brought me into the light, out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. But the funny thing is, that one rescue wasn't enough. Because the truth is, often when I'm up here talking, I feel like a fake, like a phony. Uh, I'll just be very candid with you this morning when my wife and I had a great morning. We ate brunch, lots of fun at home, hanging out. It was great. And then when I was about to step out the door, I I looked at her and I said, Jenny, I just don't want to go today. It's just like, like nothing feels right. I don't feel ready. And my wife is so funny. The only thing she said was, you can do it, right? I was like, okay, I can do it. And then I walked out and sat in my car and I was like, no, I can't. I can't do it. I just sat there. Because the truth is, I feel false. I feel like a con man. I feel like I work so hard to put on this exterior for you to see, so that you sit there for 35 minutes on a Sunday and think, oh yeah, this guy's worth listening to. But the reality is, if I were to open myself up and show you what's in here, you wouldn't listen. I wouldn't listen. And today, all afternoon, I had this voice in my head, this dark voice in my head. Like, what are you doing? Are you going to get up there and talk to all these people and they're going to listen to you and you think you're going to tell them about God and Jesus? Because sometimes you don't even know how much, how deeply you believe in the stuff you say you believe. I mean, all of these dark and messed up voices creeping into my mind. You know what I realized today? Actually, it was during the 5 o'clock service, during worship. I just lost it. I just lost it. Because what, what hit me, what I realized, was that it really is not about being rescued once. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, the fact that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his son, that was not a one-time deal. He is interested. He is all about rescuing us every moment of every day. Like those moments that you have just like me when you feel like you're just not cutting it. Like you're not worth it. You have nothing to contribute. You have nothing to give. You feel like a hypocrite, right? You feel like a con artist. I feel like these things all the time. Sometimes I feel like those things in the moment that I am up here talking to you. And you have no idea. And it's the enemy from his dark place whispering these lies to me and to you. Whispering that we're not worth it. Whispering that we are beyond rescue, that we are beyond redemption whispering to us that God rescued us once, but is there any way he would continue rescuing us? Because I keep messing up. 
You know what the sad thing is? I mess up the same way over and over again. How much does God's grace extend? How far does it go? And the enemy continues to whisper these lies to us. But here's the truth whispered to you from the kingdom of the Son. He has rescued us. And he will rescue us every moment of every day. He will rescue you tonight if you need it. He will rescue you tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. You are never beyond his reach and you are always worth it for him. I know that's hard to believe. That's hard to believe for me. But truth is truth. Uh, I'm going to ask Andy and Shemina to come back up, and we're going to close with some songs. Here's what I would like to do tonight as we, um, as we close. I just want to spend a little bit of time praying with you, praying for you. Um, because I think all of us, uh, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think all of us have been to that place where we just feel like, man, I don't think I'm worth it. I think I'm beyond. I think I'm past that. I mean, God rescued me once, but I just keep screwing up. I think a lot of us feel... um, alone because we choose to believe the worst about ourselves. We choose to believe the lies that the enemy whispers to us from the dark. And so I just want to pray for you and with you about that. The truth is, this talk really, I found out, um, found out earlier tonight, that this talk really wasn't for you. I just needed to talk to myself. So thanks for letting me do that. Would you close your eyes? Just everybody, close your eyes and bow your heads or whatever. Just, just have intimate kind of, I don't want anybody to feel the pressure of feeling like eyes are on them. Nobody's looking at you. I'm looking, but nobody else. No one's looking at you. I just wanna, I just wanna pray two prayers. The first prayer is this. The first prayer is for those of you who, who received the rescue of God in your life at some point. Maybe it was uh, just a week ago. Maybe it was 20 years ago, 40 years ago. You received Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you let him grip you by the hand and pull you out of darkness and into his kingdom. But funny thing. You still feel like life is dark sometimes. It's confusing because you were rescued out of darkness into the kingdom of the sun where there is a light and joy and peace and yet your life still feels dark sometimes. To you, I want to say, man, I'm, I'm right there with you. I feel that way too. And so I want to pray for you. God, would you take our shaky, um, frightened hearts. Those of us who have said yes 
to your invitation into the kingdom of your son, God, to the kingdom of Jesus. And yet life is still dark sometimes. God, would you drown out the whispers and the lies of the enemy from his dominion of darkness that tell us that we're beyond redemption? Would you drown out those lies with your strong voice of truth and grace and love that tells us your love never fails and that we are always worth the life of your son that you gave on the cross so that we might enter the kingdom. Fill us with that confidence. Pierce our darkness with your light. Keep your eyes closed. I want to ask a really important question because for some of you, you don't need that reminder you just heard What you need is an invitation. Some of you have heard uh, about rescue maybe here and there, or some of you are hearing it for the very first time tonight, that you no longer need to live your life in the brokenness and darkness that you feel like you've been living in. Some of you, in listening to these words or hearing these songs, are starting to see light through the cracks of your dark life for the first time, and you are curious. You're wondering what's on the other side. If you have never said yes to God's invitation for rescue, to drag you out of the darkness and to bring you into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light where there is life eternal. If you have never said yes to that and you are wanting to tonight, you just raise your hand. And maybe there's nobody, but just raise your hand high. Nobody's looking uh, except myself and Ryan. And we just want to pray for you. If you've never said yes to God's invitation, yeah, I see you. Awesome. Anybody else? You want to say yes to God's invitation to be rescued into the kingdom of his son for the first time. Just raise your hand. Awesome. Let me pray for you. God, we um, are filled with awe and wonder and joy tonight that this brother of mine is saying yes to your invitation for the first time. We ask that you would fill his heart with so much grace so much truth, so much love, that even now in this moment and in this space, he might feel redemption in a visceral way, in a real way. God, we ask that you would bring people alongside to journey with him that we as a community might journey with. And we celebrate new life this heart that you have awakened to life in you for the first time. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would you all stand? Um, If you made a decision to say yes to God's invitation for rescue, to say yes to Jesus for the first time, whether you raised your hand or not, would you just be sure to let us know? Ryan and I will be hanging out. You can come talk to us afterwards. We'd love to talk to you. But before you go, absolutely, before you go, you can't do this on your own. Just fill out that little blue card and say very quickly, easily, I made a decision to be rescued by God for the first time tonight. Just fill that out with your info and drop it off in in one of the boxes before you go. We'd love to connect with you. We're going to sing here in a moment. But I want to pray this prayer over all of us. It's an ancient prayer by a man named Thomas Merton. He prayed this. I was not sure where I was going and I could not see what I would do when I got there. But you, God, saw further and clearer than I, and you opened the seas before my ship, whose track led me across the waters to a place I had never dreamed of, and of which you were even then preparing to be my rescue, my shelter, and my home. Amen.